Kia ora, I'm Georgina Campbell. It's August 14th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Six months ago today, a national state of emergency was declared as Cyclone Gabrielle made landfall on Aotearoa. While all eyes were on Auckland, the East Coast ended up being the worst hit, with immense devastation across the region. The front page checked in with Hawke's Bay Today editor Chris Hyde a week after the disaster to hear firsthand about the strength of the cyclone's impact. On today's episode, Hyde joins us again for an update on how long the road to recovery is. Chris, I was down in Hawke's Bay with you in the aftermath of Cyclone Gabrielle and I can remember just how badly damaged the region was. Landslides, washed out bridges and roads, flooded streets, twisted railway tracks. How much of that damage is is still very visible when you're driving around Hawke's Bay? There's a lot of damage still remaining. We knew it would be years to rebuild and it's proven to be years to rebuild. There remains significant pockets of destruction, specifically in rural Hawke's Bay. I think the railways themselves, some of them may never be rebuilt. They, they talk about going all the way back up to Wairoa again, which is a worthy goal, but I think it will be a challenge. We haven't even got connected back to Napier yet in terms of rail. That goes all the way to Hastings, but no further than that. And then roading, we are gradually getting there. Last week, we reopened the Red Cliff Bridge, which is one of the iconic images of the cyclone, I guess. This shot of a bridge just smashed by logs and, and trees, which was a major arterial route. Just down the road, the Brookfields Bridge, there's no indication of when or if that will be rebuilt as well. So there is significant damage still, even just driving between Napier and Hastings. If you take Pukapai Road down through Pukapai, it's a heart-wrenching experience every single time. And some communities were completely shut off during the cyclone. Do they all have access now? And what is that access like? You know, is it still pretty makeshift? We've heard that there are some who may be right out in the back blocks who still don't have access. We're talking rural Wairoa. We're talking single figures rather than anything more than that. Whereas in the immediate aftermath, we're talking thousands. Most people are able to get access to where they need to go if they need to go and do it. But, you know, there are still bridges that are, that are out. And so it is quite pervasive in even everyday life of a city goer in some ways, knowing that a lot of the bridges between Napier and Hastings are challenged in terms of traffic. It's quite pervasive how just even the regularities of everyday life, it still has an impact, and even in the cities. Because that's one of the things that really struck me, is that it really did seem like pockets of devastation. You know, you talk about Pakafai Road. I mean, I drove through there maybe a couple of months ago, and it was still really bad. And then in Napier City, if you were just walking around the city, you probably would have no idea that this really terrible natural disaster had happened. So how has the cleanup effort differed between the urban and and rural areas? 
I mean, you talk about that on the Friday that the cyclone hit, you know, I went to Havelock North and there were people having pen and wires, you know, um, and we'd all just been out on our feet doing as much work as we can. And I wanted to go in and shape them. It was those different worlds, you know, it's really challenging for the people that are in that situation that are living in those pockets because most people have moved on with their lives, but these people can't. They are stuck in a long, long process to get back to normality if they ever can get back to normality. They're in some ways really unfortunate because it was a horrific once in a lifetime, hopefully, event, but it had places where the infrastructure failed in most cases, you know. If the stop bag had failed further up Roy's Hill on the Tutaikuri River, then Pukafai might not have been flooded at all on the Nutterauto River. It might have been Flaxmere or it, might, it could have been Hastings, Central Hastings, that was underwater. You just have to feel for these people that they had this luck. Well, people, there's a sign before a big storm and it's usually a circle around the sun and we call that Te Karuotiatua. On the Saturday, I saw this huge circle around the sun. I said, it's going to be big. And when it hit this region, it hit it hard. As you can see, the bridge is full of sand, and there's a terrific tide coming down from Wainami. Now that the headlines have sort of faded and you don't have the nation's media walking around the streets every day, what is it like in terms of those people getting help? Are locals who haven't been affected, is there still that volunteer system or support network helping rural areas or people who have lost everything? I can't speak highly enough about this community and their generosity with their time and their, their mahi. It is still going on six months later. People are still volunteering their time to go and help out with people when they need to. We are still in the spotlight, I think. It feels like we are mostly in the spotlight of the government. They've announced billions for Hawke's Bay. It's hard to imagine that it uh, wasn't that many months ago that this basin here was completely full of water. We made the commitment we would support the communities affected by the cyclone and by flooding uh, through the recovery effort. That was never going to be an overnight recovery effort. It's one that's going to take some time. And you've seen already a significant level of investment from the government in helping to support these communities to recover. There's been a lot of spotlight on where grants things like and funds are being distributed. The Red Cross has run into challenges in terms of its communication of its disaster fund. It noted that it would have most of the money spent within six months, but that's still only 50% when they say it like that. And that has rubbed people up the wrong way a little bit. Even the Chamber of Commerce has had challenges with its funds, criticisms that it's given money to people that don't deserve it, whereas ones that do couldn't access it. So the government has announced billions of dollars. What about, you know, in, in terms of the rebuild and looking at these categories and which houses can be built and which can't? Where is that at? I mean, I think if you look at Christchurch, it was a very slow process to determine those red zones, right? And so we have a system here called Category 1, Category 2, Category 3, which is essentially the green zone, the, the orange zone and the red zone. And these are all provisional, apart from Category 1. If you're Category 1, you can go back to doing whatever you want to do. And it's going to be a long time. There are still hundreds of people 
hundreds of homes in this state of limbo, mm-hmm. not knowing if they're going to be able to rebuild again, not being able to be covered by insurance in some cases because they're yellow sticket, but they're in a provisional red zone. It's a long process. You can't hurry it, but you can't be slow with it either. It's a real catch-22 for everyone. I feel for those who are going through it. They do. If you're finding this episode of The Front Page interesting and informative, be sure to follow us on iHeartRadio or whichever podcast app you're using right now. Every listen helps us keep you up to date with the stories that matter. So given that there have been these problems with getting money out the door, it's going to be such a long process in terms of sorting out these categories. What do people on the ground think of the government and local councils? What's the perception, do you think? It's really hard to make a call on that in an election period. The squeaky voices are the ones we hear, whereas there are people who perhaps don't speak up, who we never hear from. I I think overall, the feeling is that it's pretty hard to have done much more, but we wish we could have, you know? There've been mistakes, of course, all throughout, but that's natural because it's a huge natural disaster and we will continue to see errors being made by all organisations dealing with this. Probably hasn't helped either that the government ministers who were based on the East Coast have now left cabinet or politics in general due to various scandals. What do people on the ground think of those resignations? Do they feel a bit annoyed? Oh, I think people are very frustrated by the fact that it's all happened. Over here on the East Coast, you know, it's just been one after the other, really. But I think it's interesting that it has been because it shows possibly levels of stress that those people have been under. In the case of Kitty Allen, perhaps. It's been a massive job to be a, a leader or a politician over the past six months and listening to heartbreaking stories over and over again and, and trying to find solutions to it. It wears people down. I, I can totally understand how that happens. One of the big areas of consternation after the cyclone was around how the forestry industry was seemingly getting a free ride and that allowed the slash to wash down and cause so much damage. We've been reporting on slash for a really long time, for years in fact, but the news that Oliver had been killed hit the newsroom like a shockwave really. You know, it was just heartbreaking. My first thoughts as a parent were, how can this possibly have happened and is there any way that we can undo it? But of course, it can't be undone, it can't be fixed. And then the next thing I thought was, how can it be prevented? And that's where the accountability comes in. The government ordered an inquiry. Can you run us through some of the recommendations that were made and how they've been received? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the Regional Council in Hawke's Bay put out its own report relatively soon after the cyclone to show exactly how much of the woody debris that flowed down the rivers was actually slash. And it showed it was a very small percentage that had obvious signs of being forestry slash. Um, And much of it was pines weren't necessarily associated with forestry or willow or just trees that got caught up in a hillside that had a landslip. And so 
because of that, the government inquiry was a little bit almost irrelevant to most of Hawke's Bay other than Wairau. But they did recommend a lot of stricter processes, particularly in Tairawhiti and Gisborne. The forestry industry, I think, has been very frustrated that it's been made a scapegoat, but there is obviously things that need to be done. Yeah, and and just, I guess, casting the net a bit wider, what is the general mood amongst locals after all these months? You know, we've talked about some of it, but is there still a bit of shell shock over what happened and what's still unfolding? Absolutely. I don't think anyone that has been in a situation where you have to climb onto your roof with your, all your possessions floating away, with your family, maybe your kids. There were hundreds to thousands of those people in Hawke's Bay who had to go through that experience. And the idea that it's not going to have ramifications for mental health, shell shock, all of that sort of thing, it is. It's not going to go away for a long time. People will remember it forever. The general mood is quite tricky to gauge. We're moving on. We're a stoic region. We are from the provinces, so we just get on with it. Still just such a pervasive part of everyday life here. Every story that we write has in some respects got some relevance to the cyclone. You know, we, we wrote a story this week about the fact that there will be no white bait season here in Hawke's Bay. And that's a direct consequence of the fact that our rivers are still not recovered from the torrent that flowed through them. And so therefore we have to have a rivalry, so we can't have white bait this year. And it's just those constant little niggly things that affect people. What about you personally as the editor of the local paper? I mean, how have you found it over the past few months? I have been really proud of the team that I have here. They're all still here. <laughs> you know, no one left <laughs> after the cyclone. We have really bonded over this experience, I think, and we have produced important information for this region over the last six months. It's been a real challenge, but uh, it's not one that has been insurmountable. That first week was one of the hardest things you'll ever have to experience as an individual, as an editor, trying to talk to people without being able to actually communicate through a phone. It's a bizarre experience that will stay with me forever, I think. Yeah. I mean, I remember arriving at the airport and then nothing. I, I couldn't communicate with anybody and I had to somehow get to the airport and the plan that was made kind of, you know, fell through a little bit. I, I got there in the end, but it just made me realise how much we rely on being able to pick up the phone and, man, when you can't, you definitely know about it. How hard has it been for your team getting a newspaper out every week? Even last week, we had a road snowfall warning for the next Topol Road. Normally, we'd take a chance on that. It's only forecast to be a light dusting, but because of the sheer vulnerability of the roads, State Highway 5 coming through, we just can't take that chance. And so we're printing the paper for the night just because of that. And we've done that several times since the cyclone because we worry about the vulnerabilities of our roads closing at short notice. Maybe we can end on a slightly brighter note in that there are large parts of Hawke's Bay that 
are still open for business. They're open to visitors. I'm hearing a lot of that sentiment from locals there who want people to know that not everything is destroyed and they'd really love to have people there. Is is that what you're hearing too? Yeah. Oh, look, I can be a bit of a negative nearly at times about things, but yeah, absolutely. Like Hastings is normal. Napier is normal. They're still beautiful cities to visit and have a lot to offer in terms of tourism and visitor experience. And the more that people come back, the easier recovery as a region will be and we want to see them. Um, And so don't think about going somewhere else for the summer holidays because you're worried that no, the beaches might not be the way you want them to be. They are perfectly fine. You know, we did a big burn off of all the cyclone wood. No, at Matariki, it was a beautiful healing experience. We're ready to have you guys again for summer and spring. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. Thanks for listening. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Georgina Campbell. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines. Music